0: Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name. This morning, welcome to our service. I was uh, I was uh, blessed as I listened to the devotional this morning, Sunday School devotional, and then the Sunday School lesson. What I'd like to talk to you about this morning is somewhat in a, of an extension, or a it kind of fits in very nicely with what we've been talking about uh, up to this point. Turn with me to John 18. I, uh, I've been taking some things out of the Book of John for quite some time. I've kind of taken a bit of a, um, of, a uh, of a sabbatical from that for the last while. But I'd like to come into John here again, and um, I would like to pull out a very familiar part of this uh, book and uh, apply it to our day to day. So let's um, let's read John eighteen thirty three to forty. Very familiar scripture, but let's read it. John 18:33 Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thy own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. And what hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then when my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from hence. Pallet therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth, heareth my voice. Pallet saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find no fault in him at all. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you at the Passover? Excuse me. That I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. You know, very, very familiar account here. And um, Often we get a little hard on palate here, but I would like you for a minute just to think about what this poor man, the stress this poor guy was under at this point. So here comes this angry mob of Jews with somebody who they had just indicted under their own ceremonial law as for blasphemy because he had um, called himself God. And so the high priest says, What? what what more do we need let's let's haul this guy off to the uh to to pallet here let's get the authority to crucify him. so when they haul him off to pallet, they had to change the tune slightly because they they knew that pallet wouldn't buy the thing that so what if he says he's God? what you know pallet is a is a political ruler there the governor who cares who cares what uh, what he's making claims of? They had to come up with a little bit of a different line, so what they said then is this man is trying to make himself Caesar. He's trying to, uh, to, um, uh, he's trying to put himself up as a king. So Pallet goes to Jesus and he says, um, "Are you a king?" And uh, Jesus said, "Yeah, I, I am. I, I am a king. But there's one thing you don't understand, Pallet. I'm not your typical king. My kingdom is not of this world." He said, "If it was," My servants would fight that you would be delivered, that I would be delivered from these Jews. But because my kingdom is not of this world, my, my servants aren't fighting. Well, Pallet said, uh, he grabbed onto this and he said, "Art not thou therefore a king? And Jesus said, yes. That's the truth. That's why I came into this world. And then Pallet, You know, he hears the background noise out there, and he hears the people screaming to crucify this person. And in our day-to-day, I think we would say he was ready to pull his hair out. He says, what is truth? What is truth? I don't know what the truth is. You say you're a king, but you say you're not a typical king. And out here, they're screaming to crucify you. Thank you. He said, what is truth? We get a little hard on it And we say, you know, Pala, you should have known what truth was. You know, you asked the question, if you really want to know what truth was, you could have known what truth was. And there may be some truth to that. But I feel for Pala. He was, he had it. What is truth? The fact here is that Jesus was promoting an otherworldly kingdom. And it could hardly have been a secret to the keen observer an interested person in the last three years that that is exactly what Jesus was promoting. Jesus, ran out of the gate in Matthew 4, it says that he went about Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In Matthew 10, when he sends out the twelve, he says, Go ye and preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Acts 28 30, the very last Verse of, of Acts, it says that Paul spent two years in his hired house. And what did he do in his hired house? It said he preached the kingdom of God. In Revelation 1.9, John introduces himself and says, I am your brother, your companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom in patience of Jesus Christ. This idea of an otherworldly kingdom and being part of an otherworldly kingdom is not new. It's not a new idea. You've heard it before. It was something that Jesus preached out of the gate. It's something that the apostles latched onto and preached. It's something the early church understood. My question to you is today do you understand that? Do you understand that you are actually a part of another kingdom? Do you, do you grasp that? All throughout the church age, the Pilgrim Church has recognized that true religion will not mix with the thought processes and necessary procedures of a worldly governing nation. We as American citizens have struggled with this. We make a valid attempt at a literal adherence to the word of God. But we have struggled, I think, to find our niche in this very pluralistic, inclusive, experiment called democracy. We have become, I think, too comfortable calling this nation a Christian nation, or at the very least saying it was founded on Christian principles. I would like to ask you, is that correct? Is it correct to call this a Christian nation or say that it was at least founded on Christian principles? Is America any more Christian than Iran or North Korea? You you think about that and then you decide why you would say yes or no to that. I would like to explore this morning deeply how we fit into American society, why we have some of the ideas we do when Christ clearly says my kingdom is not of this world. And if you're going to be part of Christ's kingdom, you're going to look radically different than a nation of the world. And I would like to clear the air on some of the misconceptions that we possibly grapple with. So let's get started here. Historically, we as Christians have known little of this term of citizenship in the world. I should say we as Mennonites slash Anabaptists. In the Middle Ages, um, depending on where you were born and who you were born to, determined largely what you identified as. You were either born as a serf or as a nobleman. There was no middle class. You were one or the other. And who your papa was determined that. You were either a Catholic or a Protestant or a uh, Muslim or whatever you were, based on your geographical area that you were born into. It was just simply the way it was. But then along comes this radical sect known as the Anabaptists, who were by default made the all scouring of the land. Because of their radical view that, look, you can't determine whether, what religion I ascribe to just simply because I'm born in Switzerland or Germany or Spain. It's a whole lot deeper than all of that. So, because of that, they had their property confiscated. They were hunted like the varmints of the land. They were put to death. They were deported, and they hid in the hinterlands of their countries to escape the long arm of a very unbenevolent government. That's not news to you. You know that. That's just some some church history that I know you're all familiar with. But after decades and in enti- and certain countries, centuries of this persecution, whenever we, when I use the term we, I mean we as as Anabaptists and, and other uh, biblical Christians. Whenever there was the sweet smell of free dirt in Penn's woods, it didn't take long for many people to decide that it was worth that agonizing Atlantic voyage, the agony of eking out a living in the wilderness, and the many other unknowns, because we could enjoy religious freedom. And that's what we wanted. That's what the Anabaptists promoted, actually. Um... You can't determine what my religion is. Please let me just have the freedom to worship God according to my conscience. This is what they wanted. And in Penn's Woods, they had that, that opportunity. But there was an unexpected twist to this blessing. We came over here, and suddenly we were citizens. Before we were unwanted subjects that the government would just as well deport, but now we're citizens. And were welcomed, and were said, "Yeah, shut up, set up shop, clear the wilderness, uh, make farms, make money, be part of the economy. We want you here." That was strange. That was not something that Christians had dealt with heretofore. And so it was a, uh, it was a, uh, it was a mixed blessing. Um, Mennonites, uh, in particular. Um, got somewhat involved in the political atmosphere there of Pennsylvania to keep the Quakers in the assembly. It was very important to them that the Quakers stayed in power in Pennsylvania during those times. Because, after all, Pennsylvania was a a wonderful place, and the Quakers were very kind to them, and they wanted to see that continue. The other inevitable blessing-slash-curse, depends on which way you want to call it or look at it, two sides to this thing, was that in America, the Christians, uh, true Christians, found it extremely comfortable. And they were able to become wealthy. And that was the first time that happened. Um, in general, in today's world, uh, if we struggle financially, it's generally, not always, I want to be careful here, it's not always the case. But generally, it's because of poor choices we have personally made on the financial front. That's not always true. I want to quickly say that. But it is. It typically is. As we uh, acculturated into society, and as we have <clears throat> aged as a people group in America, uh, several things have happened to us. In the old times, we identified as Germans. We spoke German. We ate German. We still eat sort of German, and some of us like Mexican, Chinese food too. But that—that's who we were. We were Germans. And uh, people were actually identified as 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 a German. That worked as somewhat of a buffer against uh, the culture around us. But be that as it may, that's, that's the way it was. As we have aged, we've left that behind. We no longer identify as Germans. We identify as Americans. As America has become a melting pot, a huge melting pot of people from all over the world, another thing has happened that I think we don't think about. Yes, when we walk down the street, we may be perceived as a bit weird, but you know, there's a lot of other weird people out there too. Am I any weirder than the guy with the tattoos and the rings hanging out his nose? And, and it's just weirder than weird, you know. So we're just another weirdo among weirdos, okay? So it doesn't really, it doesn't, it doesn't strike everybody as being completely untoward. So it makes us fit in just a little bit better. And the other thing that's happened is we have become a very useful part of the American economy. I'm not sure what would happen if suddenly all true Christians would just disappear. I'm not sure what would happen to the economy. But I do know this. And, and I say this, this has been a blessing, and I say this in, in respect, and I think we should be okay with this. But very recently I had a neighbor that told me how that he sold some corn to a, another Mennonite that I knew. And he said he left and he didn't pay for it, but he said, I'm not worried about it because, and this is his words, he said, I trust you people. Well, praise the Lord. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure we need to be proud about that, but I'm okay with having that reputation that I can be trusted. I don't know about you. The other thing I think that has happened is that we have lost touch uh, with the reality of our own experiences in the U.S. over the last 250 years or so. And this loss of reality has allowed us to have some very real misconception about our historical interaction with society. Couple that with the fact that we have the tendency to view the U.S. as standing in the world as God's blessing or approval, we kind of come up with this idea, I don't think we'll say this, but I think in the back of our minds, we kind of have this idea that, you know, yeah, we are sort of all Christians here, and you know what, our form of government probably is the best. You know, and the founding fathers probably were Christians, and uh, you know we're a little better Christians, but they probably were Christians too. And you know the Repo- the Republican Party is certainly more Christian than the Democratic Party. I don't think we'd say that out loud, but I think we sort of think that in the back of our minds. Maybe you don't, but maybe I'm confessing that maybe I do, you know, I'm not sure, but I think that's sort of how we think. And then it doesn't help that uh, historians, and, and these people are well-meaning, I don't mean to throw stones, but well-meaning Christian historians uh, have done a rather good job of presenting American history in a way that is embellished, maybe I'll say that, maybe distorted, a little embellished. Um, I'll leave that for you to think about. But uh, there is some interesting interesting uh, happenings in the last several years that have somewhat exposed some of that embellishment. In particular, um, a man by the name of David Barton, you may have heard of him, he has done a lot of research on the founding fathers and their their perceived um, ideas of being a Christian and so on. And he was somewhat called out from the carpet by his own people here in 2012 for trying his dead best to make Thomas Jefferson a Christian. And even people that would somewhat be in his camps said, wait a minute, you can't do that. That's not the case. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to spend the rest of the morning here exploring some areas that I think we do well to consider and clear the cobwebs from our minds as we bide our time here in our earthly sojourn in this world. Are we Americans, true Americans, or are we somebody that the Hebrew writer says of whom the world is not worth Which camp do you identify with? Okay, so some things that will help us. Let's recognize that historically, while we have found much religious freedom in this country, there is ominous evidence that when we will not, for conscience' sake, bend to the prevailing winds and whims of society, we will face the wrath of the nation. I'm going to give you four examples of that. Maybe news, may not be news to you. But I just want I want to drive this point home. Did you know that if you would have been a Mennonite or a Quaker or a Dunkard or a Moravian brother or a Sunday Baptist living in Pennsylvania during the Revolution, we wouldn't be having this discussion. Those people did not say, wow, what a Christian nation we live in. No way. That didn't happen. Those people suffered persecution that few of us know about, or at least I did not. I was not aware of the extent of it. Until recently when I was doing some reading. So when these people, especially our people, I'll kind of use Mennonites as the inclusive name here. When we came over to Pennsylvania, there was one thing we had to do. Was we, had to sign a, uh, we had to sign a paper that said, I'm going to be loyal to the King of Britain. Now, he allowed me to come over here. He has my loyalty. So they come over here. They, they set up shop. And they're having a good time. And suddenly we have these rabble browsers out there in, in, you know, the larger colonial America that decide, you know, we don't like the King of England anymore. We're going to just revolt, you know. Now that's a very simplistic way of putting it. They, they thought they had their reasons and things. But anyway, this put, this put the Mennonites on a corner. Because we were told, well, we signed allegiance to the King of England. Now we're told, oh no, not him anymore. It's it's us. You 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 cozy up to the rabble rousers of colonial America now. Again, I'm talking I'm talking very simplistically. There's much more to the student. Well, they're not gonna do that. Anabaptists, true Christians, are good on their work. I'm not gonna say suddenly, oh no, I'm not I'm you know, that, that little piece of paper I signed, that's no good anymore. No. I'm not gonna do that. I'm not going to join your militia. I'm not going to fight the king of England. So what happens? That's where the uh things uh things started started to go south. In Pennsylvania, and this was news to me, maybe you would maybe you would have known this, but if you would not join the militia, for every person, every man between the age of eighteen and fifty three, you had to spend sixty days in the militia. If you would not do that, you had to pay the equivalent in today's money Four thousand dollars for every sixty days you do not serve the militia. So let's let's pretend you're a father, you're less than fifty-three, and you have let's say uh, four sons. That makes five of us, right? This is four thousand dollars per head. You suddenly are forking over twenty thousand bucks every year because you will not serve sixty years in the militia. or I'm sorry, sixty days, 60 days in the militia, two months. I don't know about you, but I don't really have $20,000 just sitting around. I'm not sure how it was for those folks then. But to say that that wasn't a hardship is a stretch. It was a hardship. Then, to add insult to in- injury, there was what they called the Test Act. To root out the Tories and the British sympathizers, uh, the revolutionary government came around and said, here, you now have to take what's called the Test Act, and that is you have to pledge allegiance To the new government. As I already told you, they weren't interested in doing that. Because they had said, we're loyal to the king of Britain. So if you did not do that, suddenly you couldn't leave the county that you lived in. You couldn't cross any borders. You couldn't buy and sell very freely at all, if if at all. And you faced threatened jail time and confiscation of your property. Well, there were some people, some, um, uh, some of the officials there in Northampton County, there in, in Pennsylvania, that were very unsympathetic towards these untoward Mennonites. And it's interesting that the, the one that was the least sympathetic was an ex Moravian. That, that's just an interesting twist. And so they proceeded to enact those, um, particular Things to the down to the wire. Four Mennonite families were sold to the walls. Came in, took out beds, food, Bibles, stoves, horses, anything these people owned was auctioned yeah. off on public sale, and the and the um, the heads of home were sent to to jail. And a few of those ladies were pregnant and were forced to sleep on the floor with no stove, no nothing. Now, after some appeals to the Pennsylvania legislature, some of this was resolved. But I'm just telling you, things were not the greatest during those times. And what, and probably the most um, uh, sad incident was in 1778. There was a Quaker man who was hanged in Pennsylvania, basically on a mob spirit. Uh There was no indictment that they could prove, but uh, he was hung as a traitor. Merely on suspicion. Despite a petition by 4,000 people that this man is innocent. I simply share that with you to, to tell you that in 1778 we didn't sit around thinking that America was a Christian nation. That didn't happen. Now. Let's move on. The Civil War era <coughs> brought another time of testing. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but if you'd have lived in the South during the Civil War era, again, you wouldn't have thought you were living in a Christian issue. If you would have been in the Shenandoah Valley during Sheridan's raid, where scorched earth policy was in place, you wouldn't have thought the North was very christian either. And if you lived in the North, and you lived in Lancaster County, and you voted for Thaddeus Stevens as senator, is it senator or representative? I can't remember, but anyway, you could probably face the ire of your neighbors because they weren't very happy with people that voted and then wouldn't fight for the North. So to say that the Civil War era was a time of comfort for the Christians is just not very true. And then probably the most, um, one of the sadder eras of our time was during World War I, it's another time of a sobering reminder that the world is not a friend of Greece. Um, I don't know. How many of you know about the the Hofer Brothers? The Hutterites? The Holford Brothers? Okay. Um, Hutterites from South Dakota that were drafted into the Army in nineteen eighteen, sent out to Washington to uh Fort Lewis, and of course they they got there and and um they refused to put on uniform. And um March, do the military service, things that they were supposed to do there. So they were court-martialed and sent to, uh, Alcatraz there in California. It was a prison that was designated for, for their kind, people that would not cooperate with the government during that, that era. When they got to Alcatraz, they were sent into what was known as the hole. Solitary confinement, 14 flights of stairs down, eight and a half, or I'm sorry, eight by six and a half steps. Nothing in it, except one thing. An army uniform lay on the ground, and you can either choose to put that thing on or you choose not to. Well, by that time, the brothers had decided that they weren't going to put the uniform on, so they were forced to lay on damp concrete in the bed. The first four and a half days, they got exactly a half a cup of water. That's what they got for so their fare. And after that, they got some bread, along with their water. I forget the amount of time, but for an extended period of time down there, the prison officials used a technique. It's a very, very nice term. But they used a technique called high cupping. Now, high cupping is when you have your hands together like this, stretched out as far as possible, and your feet are just so hitting the floor, your toes are just so hitting the floor, and you're just hung there for days at a time. When those boys came out of there, their arms were so swollen they could not get their arms into the coast. Okay, this all happened in the U.S. Well, the war ended, and these brothers are still in Alcatraz, and so you would think that perhaps they would be released, but that was not the case. Alcatraz was decommissioned as a military prison, but they were sent to Leavenworth. So they went to Leavenworth. When they got to Leavenworth, they were forced to stand several hours in a bitter cold, with just the own brother. And they were not treated any nicer than 11 months. A few days or weeks later, I can't remember which, and it doesn't matter, both of these brothers died from the mistreatment. Now I want to just ask you this. Does this sound like something that happened in America or something you read in Martyrs' book? The Mennonite historian Henry Smith said this. He said, this story... Reads more like a page from the martyrology of the European Mennonites in the 16th century than like an actual experience in America in the 20th. Another thing that we experienced here that we don't talk about or know much about, but during the mid, mid-20th century when the Christian school movement was uh, gaining momentum, there was actually several... Amishmen spent time in jail to get that freedom to have in the school. I'm going to stop there. I've given you enough stewards, and they're not very nice stewards. I'm tired of giving you these unkind stories. What I'm trying to say, folks, is that if you would have been any one of these people during any one of these eras, you would not grapple with whether America is Christian or not. You would not. You would understand these things. You would see it as another nation of the world. It simply is not kind to Christians. That's the way you would see it. Given the right set of circumstances, the dark side of any unsympathetic people will vent itself. Let's move on. How about this confusion about whether America is a Christian nation? Do you suppose it lies in fact that we don't have the discernment to discern between Civil religion and true religion. Every society has a civil religion, whether you admit it or whether you recognize it or not. Civil religion is very, very helpful in holding society together, holding its fabric together. As it turns out in our own history, the founders saw religion as defined loosely in the Christian faith. And they were fine with this religion as long as it served the purpose of making good American citizens. It is interesting to note that the Greek historian Polybius felt the same way about pagan Rome. And I'm going to read to you what he wrote. This is pre-Christ era. This is what he wrote about pagan Rome. He says, The quality in which the Roman commonwealth is most distinctly superior, in my opinion, is the nature of its religion. The very thing which is an object of reproach, superstition, is which maintains the cohesion of the Roman state. It is introduced to such an extent in private and public life as no other religion parallel. I believe the government has adopted this course for the sake of the common people. This might not be necessary if everyone in the country were wise men, but in every multitude there are those who are fickle, full of lawlessness, unreasoned passion, and violent anger, and it must be held in check by invisible terrors and religious adjectives interesting. Today in the US, civil religion is basically the pluralistic common denominator of all major religions of culture. It does happen though that in earlier times this nation did ascribe more to faith than what it does today. A few things that describe civil religion. In civil religion Evil was always promoted as something palatable. In the revolutionary time, Britain was evil. In the 40s, Hitler was evil. In the 80s, the Soviet Union was evil. In the 2000s, the Taliban and ISIS was evil. In the last six months, depending on where you are, either Donald Trump or Clinton was evil. It's just the way it is. Civil religion will confuse biblical teaching to fit humanistic thinking. I want to read to you something that's interesting on a Mississippi tombstone of a person. has this inscription. Here lies J.H.S. I don't know what his name was, but it's J.H.S. In his lifetime, he killed 99 Indians and lived in the blessed hope of making it 100 till he fell asleep in the arms of Jesus. Is that biblical? Is that humanistic? A religious magazine from the World War I era reads like this As Christians, of course, we say Christ approves of this war. Would he fight and kill? There is not an opportunity to deal death to the enemy that he would shirk from or delay in season. He would take bayonet and grenade and bomb and rifle and do the work of deadliness against those which against that which is the most deadly enemy of the Father's kingdom in a thousand years. This is the exorable truth about Jesus Christ and this war and we rejoice to say it. The issue we grapple with in the U.S. is simply this. In many eras of time and areas of the world today, true religion is outright resistant. But because we have been much more tolerated and Christianity has been to some extent espoused as a good thing in our past. We want to say that we are at the very least founded on of Christian principles. And there is an element of truth to this. In times past, I would say that um, the policies and the, some of the things that happened in rural America would indeed be more to coming than what they are today. I don't want to diminish that. But I'm of the conviction that it was largely societal peer pressure that kept people in check. You know, adultery was committed in the mid-1800s. Don't kid yourself. It was committed in during the revolutionary times. These things were around. You know, people, there wasn't maybe as much divorce, but I think people stayed married more because there was really no options. We didn't have all the government programs to help the single mothers and that sort of thing. While things maybe in general were better, they were certainly not idealistic. Another thing we maybe have a misperception of is the, because of the common sense and good morals of our, of the founding fathers, and many of them had a willingness to refer to a supreme person, we sometimes confuse them with great Christians. I won't linger long on this, but in fairness, in all fairness, there were some, such as Patrick Henry, John Weatherspoon, some of those, that did embrace tenets of Orthodox Christianity. But they always found themselves trying to mix that with their political fervor for the Revolution. And it was a very tedious path. And to his credit, or discredit, whichever side you come down on, Patrick Henry, as the first governor of Virginia, did indeed try to make the state he tried to set up Christianity as the religion and was immediately trounced on by many of his peers that that was not going right to work. But then you have people like George Washington, Was George Washington, a Christian, wasn't a Christian. George Washington was a great statesman. I will not uh, deny that fact. But to make a Christian out of George Washington is was really a stretch. Uh, historical evidence would be point to the fact that in all the times he attended an Anglican church, he never knelt in prayer or took communion. Um, in 1797, Washington negotiated a, trip, a treaty with the Muslim country of Tripoli, and here's how the treaty reads. As the government of the U.S. is not in any sense founded on Christian religion, as it has in itself no character of enmity against the laws and religion and tranquility of the Muslims, no pretext arising from a religious opinion shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries. signed Ben Simon. Ben, ben Franklin, during the Constitutional Convention, when they had reached a stalemate at a certain point in time, Ben said, you know, I really think we ought to start opening these sessions with prayer. George Washington, who was the presiding chairman over the Constitutional Convention did not vote on it, neither did he incorporate the idea. And Ben Franklin wrote his diary, nobody liked my ideas, so it was just script. I could go on and on. Ben Franklin was another interesting soul. Um, a person could almost think he was a Christian, but then again, he had a child out of wedlock. Does that sound Christian? Ugly? Mm-hmm. I won't believe this, but I think you get the point. We 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 should think more clearly about some of these things than what we do. It's also inter- interesting to note that despite the fact that all the colonial charters had a reference to God in the US Constitution does not. Does not have one reference to God. Okay, another thing we sometimes become, uh, confused on is that the tenets of Anabaptism and the ideals of early Americans were very, very similar. I found it in- interesting that in 1972, Chief Justice Warren Berger, during his, uh, writing of the majority of opinion that, uh, in 72 concerning Wisconsin versus Yoder, He wrote this simply. He said, The sinful life of the Amish is in harmony with nature and the soil as exemplified by the early Christian era that continued in America during much of its early national life. Is that true? After all I told you, you think that sound like that might be the case? Henry Smith, Mennonite historian during World War I era, confessed when he came through that that era, he confessed that he had been mistaken with the thought that America and Anabaptism were twin movements. Again, I want to stress it is true that rural America of the 17 and 1800s didn't have the issues that we face today largely. But I still would think it's because of societal taboos that kept people in check rather than the fact that everyone was Christian. And then there's the thought, the fact that the U.S. has prospered and become a superpower. Sometimes we have the false perception that God must be pleased with this country and its policies. And therefore, we must work to preserve those policies. There is a general principle in Proverbs 29, 2 that says this. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked bear rule, the people mourn. Indeed, that is a general principle. That is true. But there's a broader picture to this thing. Why did Assyria prosper? Why did Babylon? Why did Rome? Why did the Soviet Union? Why is North Korea still over where it is? Why is Switzerland one of the strongest financial bulwarks in the world when they never have tolerated true Christianity down to this very day? Do you understand that? Was it last Sunday or the Sunday before we... We uh, looked at the prophet Habakkuk. And he grappled with this as well. He said, more, He said, you know, over here is the nation of Israel. And you're sending in people more evil than them to teach them a lesson. What do you, what, what's with this, God? This doesn't make sense. If you don't have this verse on the line in your Bible, I would, I would tell you you should. Daniel 4.17 says the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to the basest of men. Never forget that. We don't understand the workings of God. We don't understand why North Korea gets away with what it does. We don't understand why God uh, has prospered the U.S. the way it, it has. We don't understand these things. Neither do we need to. We simply need to accept the fact that God will give the nations to the basest of man if he chooses to do that. And who are we to question that wisdom? All right. What's the takeaway of all this Stuff that I've been giving you. I'll try to make this short. Never remember this. Never forget this. Remember this. Never forget it. While we have enjoyed unprecedented freedom in America for several generations. This is the exception and not the rule. Never forget that. There have been more Christians died worldwide in the 20th century. Than all other centuries combined. I am told. I have no way to to validate that but that's what I'm told. This is the Bible brings this out. Paul says to Timothy all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus says that the world in the world we will have tribulation. He also says that we will be delivered up to be afflicted and we should be killed and hated of all nations for his sake. And Peter sums it up. He said when this happens Don't think it's strange. You know, I I had to just sit down and contemplate that a little bit. You know, if everything broke loose and we were persecuted like crazy next week, I would think that was strange. Peter says, don't think that's really strange. Another thing we should remember, and this kind of is the flip side of what I just said. Don't feel guilty that you have freedom of religion. There's no need to feel guilty about that, or we should somehow sit around with a twisted wish for persecution. But rather, make wise use of the fatal conditions that God has placed us on. Here's another verse that we shouldn't forget either, and Paul wrote this to Timothy as well. He said, pray for kings, that you may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all values and honesty. I don't think we need to feel necessarily guilty about where we're at. But we should be sober people and understand what, is, what does take place. I think a real antidote for that is to read. The Hebrew writer says, Remember those that are in bonds, is bound with them. I think we should identify with the Christians that are suffering in North Korea. When's been the last time you prayed for those people? We have ample opportunity through uh, venues such as CAM to help Christians around the world that are suffering from one thing or another. Are we making use of this? Are we identifying with those that are in bonds? I would encourage you not to be intimidated when people begin to accuse you of not being citizens or not doing your part as a citizen of the country. And accuse you of being parasites and say that, yeah, all that needs to happen for evil to prevail is when good men do nothing. I've had all those things thrown in my teeth at one time or another. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Never forget that. There's way more you can do than serve in the military or vote or any other thing. You can live honest, godly lives. You can contribute to society in many, many ways. You can have an intact family. You can pray. And the list goes on and on. Peter says, just make sure you have a good conscience. Even if they speak evil of you, they will by their, your good works be ashamed. Make sure you lead a squeaky clean cool life. We heard about that. i don't think of your name back there but during the uh, Sunday school devotional. Let's lead, let's lead lives of, of, um, that we cannot be indicted for wrongdoing. The world holds us to a high standard, and I want to tell you folks, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. We should be held to a high standard. Another thing I would just like to say in closing here. Colossians 3, one reads like this. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And then I'm going to jump right into 1 Peter. It says, But as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. I would like to bring that right down to us today. This election cycle that we have been going through at this point has brought Christians a great deal of consternation. I talked to two, and I, I'm using Christians in a broader sense here. I talked to two Christian people this past week. Both of them said I'm not voting this year. That's as good as they can do I'm not voting. And and I could I could sense the consternation and the angst of these people. But you know, as I I talk with people and I interact with them concerning this, the reason that there's this consternation is, I think, because they have set their affections on things below and not on things above. You know, if your hope is in the fact that we can make America great again, or we can somehow return this to its Christian roots, you are... You are one sorry soul. You really are. You are really a disappointed person. Jesus is not going to ride in the back of an elephant or a donkey. The next time he comes, he's going to be on white horse. Okay? Never forget that. I really believe that the fact that we have been so comfortable and so left alone as Christians in this country has made us work to see that continue. Our, our our affections are just a little low. Our sights are a little low. I was talking to a Christian person here a few weeks ago, and he said, he, he, was, just, uh, he was just all uptight about this affection. I'm voting for Trump. Or no, I guess he didn't say that. He said, I want to see Trump win. But he said, the reason is, is because Hillary is evil. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is redeeming about Trump? Well, here's the deal. He's at least going to improve the economy. That's what I want. I want good business and good economy. Wait a minute. Sites are just a tad low, folks. Just a little bit. If we can come to grips with the fact that the whole term Christian nation is an oxymoron, there's no need for us to try to turn the nation back to God because it was never there in the first place. And we can simply go about our Father's business and know that God is in control. I want to tell you folks, that is an extremely freeing position to be in when things don't work. That's extremely free. If we're going to identify with the kingdom that Jesus presented to power our lives are going to look radically different. We're going to be absolutely separated. We're going to be holy. We're going to be Christ-like. It's going to be different than a bona fide American citizen. After World War I, Christians were indeed sobered by that particular event. There was a general conference pastor by the name of William Gottschall that said this. This war has taught me that there must be a more distinct separation of our people from the world and politics. That was his take Has this sermon been a downer for you? Maybe it was. I have an upper plan. Now. Jesus said in John 16, he says, be of good cheer. I have overcome you. All. Listen, folks, I'm not really too concerned about next Tuesday or Tuesday. Evening. It could be a hullabaloo, but we haven't been promised a thing. We haven't been. Identify with the nation that Jesus presented to power. You know, Palak, that day, he just said, you know what, I want to be part of your kingdom. I want to identify with your kingdom. I want to find this. He should have. He'd have been a lot happier. Instead, he washed his hands and said, good riddance. Get him out of Luke 12:32 says, Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So lighten up. It's not all bad. It might look bad when you keep your sights down, but turn your sights up. We have much to look forward to. Are you excited about that? I am today.